to look ahead for a second, because um, I, I really want to get us out of here early. Um, two overarching comments, observations, perspectives. Um, when you start the town, the first day after Christmas, because I know you're going to be eager to get to it, um, when you start the town, um, you're going to you're going to feel yourself transported to another world. Don Don made the comment several weeks ago. He's, um, I, I I think you all know that it wasn't written until 16 or 16 or 17 years after Wagner wrote the Hamlet, which is a shock to me, just a shock, because I I don't know how he could have left the Hamlet in the condition that he did, and not want to get on an answer. Ratliff has just been screwed. Um, and I need another word. He's just been taken. And that's how it ends. I mean, Frenchman's Ben is in a mess. It's just, it's, we've watched evil take over this town and, and the, the Hamlet ends with our knowing that he's moving on to Jefferson. So this is just the start of things. So one of the overarching questions is, <clears throat> will anybody be able to bring Phlegm down? Ratliff is really a clever man. He's a really good man. I, I, there's a, one, one of the parishioners in the evening class doesn't have much good to say about him, but I, I, I'm not as convinced as you are. No, no, I wasn't thinking of you, but um, anyway, he's a really good man, really good man. Um, whatever you think, um, he's a really good man. No, I think he's a good man, but I just can't believe you fell for that. Line. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I let leave it because I part of part of that is I don't want to get in. Part of that is, Faulkner's got a story to, you and I are not differing on this, by the way. If you read the end of it really closely, you shake your head and, and you, all you can say is, there's no way Ratliff could have fallen for this. These guys have been looking for treasure for 30 years and they haven't found it. Flem's been digging for 10 nights and, he, and Ratliff says people have probably been in and out of this plot. For, for him to say all of that and know that Flem has been digging, and you have to shake your head because he's too clever to fall for that, but I think Faulkner has to have him fall for it for the story to go ahead. So for me, it doesn't detract from his character, but but here, here's my point, here's my point. The Hamlet is, is, is a realistic world, it's the agrarian southern world as we know it, but it has a strong mythic element to it, the Olympian ejaculation, the, the horses running through that have a phantom character, the, the passages that give away old superstitious ways of doing things, you know. We're in a rustic world where people live out superstitions and where almost everything that happens is magnified. Eula is this extraordinary figure, the product of this Olympian ejaculation. I love that passage because it, it gives a sense that there's so much more going on than people see. And she's betrayed, she's sold out. Her father, Betrays her. I mean, for me, that's a huge sellout. When we go into the town, so, and, and the mansion starts in relative innocence. We get the Jody Ab story, and then we get the um, Ab, or um, Jody Flem story. What'd they say? The mansion, the Hamlet. Starts out in relative innocence. You know, we get the, the um, Jody thinks he's going to take 
at or a yeah M. <coughs> and then he meets up with Flem and thinks he's gonna get him too, and then suddenly, immediately, he sees how wrong he's been and he's taken and we're witness to the takeover of everything in Frenchman Bend by these snopes. I mean they just they multiply. So it starts in relative innocence. By the time we get to the long summer, we get the Ike wooing of the cow and the Houston mink story, and things are beginning to get deadly. They're turning dark. Um, I want to wait on some of this because I want to summarize the story in a second. This is all a, a prelude to what I'm about to say. So we're watching a group of people stand by and watch while evil has its way, and nobody does anything except Ratliff, except Ratliff. And he, you, we've talked about this. Remember, he tried to pull that goat thing that swindled on Flem and beat him, and it turned out to be a draw. Even he couldn't defeat him. And at the very end, Snopes has his way with him. He tricks him on a, what's really an unbelievable scam. I mean, it, you, you have to shake your head because Ratliff's too clever to fall for it, but he does. So the Hamlet ends with Snopes in control. And, we're, and all the Snopes have been left behind. Worse, he's on his way to Jefferson. So he's leaving this agrarian hamlet village and on his way to a city. And we know he already has interest in a restaurant because that was his deal for Frenchman Ben. So things are not looking good. It's, things are looking pretty dark. But when you, when you start reading the town, this is what happens. And it's interesting. Faulkner just amazes me, just amazes me. We're going to get the story narrated from three points of view, from Chick Mallison, Ratliff, and Gavin. And you know who Gavin, Gavin Stephen is the lawyer who we met at the end of Go Down Moses. Remember, he's the one that Molly came to. And um, There's going to be a love interest in it involving Gavin. It's going to get touching um, and, and tender and human. It's not just going to be dealing with this evil romance is going to come into this and, and it's going to extend into the mansion. But what Faulkner does with the form is stunning because the form, the plot, unfolds through these three characters who are speaking um, ostensibly to each other, but we're hearing it. So we're, we're beginning to watch a community form that people, not just Ratliff, people begin to take responsibility to try to answer this. And it's at a time when his Flem's power is, is increasing. So when you go through the town, you'll find yourself in a very different world. It won't be mythic. You won't be back in this natural, superstitious world. You're in a city. It's, there's, um, we're, um, the, the atmosphere is far more respectable. It's a city community. And you're going to feel the differences between the blacks, the lower class, and all of the public functionaries. And I mean, the contrast will come into focus there a little bit more sharply. So it's a very, very different book. Okay? And here's, here's, the, here's the, the, um, in one way, if you put all three books together, they read like a detective story. And the major question that we're left with at the end of the Hamlet is, will anybody bring phlegm down? And at this point, it doesn't look like it. And it doesn't look like it in the town, and it won't look like it in the mansion. And I want to ask a question right now, just... See, I hate... I can't... How to, 
if anybody could bring Flem down, if anybody could bring him down, who would it be? Anybody want to venture a guess? Who, who hasn't read the mansion? <clears throat> oh, I have not read the mansion. I haven't have read the town on the mansion. Yeah. Would anybody want to venture a guess who could bring him down? Never mind. Just there's something to look forward to because were there's. They in the, were they in the. Yes, you know the character. I, I know it from the Hamlet. Don't. Okay, okay go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I won't make you to won't be dear. No, go. Go ahead. I, I think one of the female characters yeah. in the Hamlet. I mean, for. Eula. Um, Eula. Well, I, I don't know about. Maybe Eula, but the, the, the one that seemed to really understand what was going on, but was just totally <coughs> incapable of having the, the, the wherewithal to do it, was the, the wife of, was it? Me? Armstead? Armstead? She was trying to get her five bucks back. Right. And she knew everybody had, you know, she had an appreciation for what everyone had done wrong. and it, it seemed to me like she had an appreciation for how stupid the men were. Yeah. But she was well, she was not empowered to do anything about it. So of all the characters that I yeah. it, it, it would be that one. Yeah. Or, you know, it's gonna be interesting to Whereas Ratliff just <coughs> I was totally disappointed in him at the end. It's it's gonna be interesting what you're gonna say in a few minutes because I want to look at that scene because the last thing that I'd say about Mrs. Armstead is she has any with wherewithal at all. I mean but let's wait, because we're going to look at that scene. Um, to me, it's a sad, sad scene. Um, anyway, that's what we're looking forward to. And, and the other thing is, if, if, evil's, if evil's beginning to spread and infect a culture, and it is, and, it, and in one sense, I mean, we're going back to Moby Dick, Sound of the Fury, we're watching a culture slip into decline. In, in a literal sense, going to hell. Flem is having his way. He, he is evil. He, he doesn't care for people. We're going to even see it dramatically this morning, what he does to me is, just makes me shudder um, while all these people watch. We're watching a culture um, disintegrate. Um, will anybody be able to stop Flem? And where is God? Um, and that, that, for me, is a complicated question because if you're Jewish, or is Islamic, um, your notion of God, if he's active in the world, would be very different from a Catholic, a Christian notion that believes in Christ, because according to a Christian view, God wouldn't just stay removed. You know, he, would, he would be actively incarnating himself in whatever he was, the where, he would have the wherewithal to do something, and it would involve self-sacrifice. So, um, is there a God in this world? Is, is, is this evil going to go unchecked? So those are my questions pointing forward, okay? So the, the town will be a very, very different read, very, very different. It'll be much quieter, more clearer, partly because you're getting it through a child. I mean, Chick is young, but, and Ratliff is... Um, and Ratliff and, and Gavin are both intelligent. I mean, they're not Faulkner. So they're not going to overwhelm us with Faulkner's language, you know. Um, it's a it's a it's a quieted down language, so it's an easier read. Um, and I, I I just would be surprised if you didn't enjoy the exchange between Chick and Ratliff and um, 
Gavin. There's this one chapter, if you've not read it, um, I, 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 to me, it's, it's one of the favorite moments in my, there, there's a number of things ahead of us. The mansion, I think, is going to blow you away. But there's this one chapter in the town where you, you're getting these four or five pages of reflection on what's going on from these three different characters. And then you come to this one page, and there's one line. That's the chapter. And it, I think it's, he didn't get it. And it goes on. And I just, just, yeah, I mean, it's just a sentence for a chapter. Who in the world would do that except Faulkner? I mean, you know, most of you guys hear these guys going, where's um, Karen, and who's, who else is, yeah, Karen, who will never let me forget how, how troubled she is at Faulkner for going on for 20 pages without one punctuation. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting to hear what her response will be when she gets to this passage that says he didn't get it, and she goes on, or he goes on. Anyway, it's a delightful read. It's a very, very different read. And what we're watching is a community form and beginning to work together to answer this problem. So, well, I just one last question, and if it's too early to address it, that, that's fine because I know there's two more books to go. But I, I keep asking myself: Is there a bigger message from Faulkner here about post-war? About what? Or a bigger message from Faulkner about? the post-war South, because, I mean, Flynn seems to be getting away with this stuff with parlor tricks. With what? Parlor tricks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not like he's got any kind of firm hold on, on anyone other than, I mean, it all starts with the fear that he's going to burn somebody's mind down. So anywhere along the way, somebody could have shut him down long before he got to the point where he got to. So is, is there some bigger <coughs> message here that... I think you've already, I mean, you just answered it in my mind, Fred, that the fact that they didn't, for, let's see, how to, let me just answer this simply and then try to give it a broader perspective. The fact that they didn't is an indication from the story of how, of the kind of innocence that Faulkner sees in the South in dealing with evil. I, I spoke to this when we did Sound of the Fury some, I think, that, that the South came out of the war. Listen, it's a that's a longer question. Big surprise. Um, um, the South came out of the war having to deal with failure and being forced to reflect on itself and its own failures and its guilt in the sin. That was something they didn't have to do before the war because they were so committed to slavery and a certain way of life. <clears throat> Faulkner knows, and we've seen it in a number of the novels we read, that Quentin, you know, whose grandfather, great-grandfather, were heroes, and the, 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 even uh, Jason, Jason's father in Sound of the Fury, was a hero. And you have this sense that Jason grew up with a sense that the South was defeated, that everybody carried the sense of loss, that they couldn't measure up, <coughs> and a whole way of life was destroyed, called into question. Now, just stop and think about that. Here's the larger perspective, in, in trying to answer your question a little bit better. Um, if, you've gone a, if you've lived your life a certain way, and that life is destroyed, um, you begin to question yourself in a way you would have never done when you took it for granted. I think we all know that from conversions in our own private lives, personally, that 
we, we reach points in our life where something happens, a kind of crisis, it can be our children, it can be our marriages, I mean, whatever it is, um, where the pain is so great that we have to stop and question things when we didn't before. Remember, one of the fundamental princes of all of this literature that we've been reading is the peripatia, the turn. In Aristotle's reading of tragedy, but I think all, liter all good literature, the turn always um, takes place with an anagnorisis, a recognition. So you go along through life and then suddenly happens and you think you've got everything figured out and then, and then something happens and you realize you had it all wrong. Oedipus is the classic example, but you can go forward. You can take every one of Shakespeare's heroes and Dante. <clears throat> every Jane Austen novel has as its center the peripatia. All of her heroines reach a point where they all see too proud, blind, they didn't see things, and then they, what happens in that moment is you go back over your life and you cast a new light on it, suddenly everything looks different. So I think what Faulkner's doing is in, in, and it's interesting, revealing a flaw in a culture, I would say, in a spirit of charity. Because when you go through the beginning of the book, you're watching these people do these foolish things, but it's very comic. You know, you enjoy it. You're watching um, um, Ab get taken by Pat Stamper, doing stupid things, selling his wife's separator, I mean, you know, and losing the cow. <clears throat> I mean, we've been watching. To use the separator. What? Justify no. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, it's, it's funny. There's a wonderful spirit of charity, I think. I mean, he's, he's showing these people do stupid things, mostly the men. No, always the men. And, um, and then it gets darker and darker and darker. Because once it starts spreading, the implications of it deepen. In the beginning, it's innocent. At the end, it's not. When we get to Mink and Houston, Mink kills Houston. He's dead. And that scene involving, that I'm going to read, that involving Mrs. Armstead, to me, is one of the most humiliating in the whole book. Um, and I'm going to say, the fact that she does so little about it is an indictment of her. We'll see it in a minute, because Faulkner's really clear. And what makes it worse is all these goddamn men standing around watching it happen. Nobody's doing anything. They can't even look at her. Yeah, they all drop their heads. But you have no. a sense of frustration because, I mean, everything she brings up, she's right. But the right. law right. basically yeah. keeps it you know, from being corrected. Yeah. And keep this in mind, I, we've got to go, because um, um, they're helpless to do anything even with the law behind them because the law is helpless, because Lump lies in the courtroom. And, every, and everybody knows it's a lie, and when he does, the law goes to work on their side. And once again, Faulkner's showing that, that evil is so subtle that not even the law is adequate to answer it. So we're, at the end of the Hamlet, we're left with, a, with a, it starts in relative innocence, it, you know, it ends in, in a dark view. And more importantly for me, to go to this theme, remember at the beginning of the Hamlet, um, it begins with Jody believing he's got Ab under his thumb, and that he'll do the same thing with Phlegm, that he will 
manipulate him and make money on him and immediately the, ta the tables are turned. Well, we're going from what is a, a private exchange, a business exchange between two men to a whole community of men in the Spotted Horse episode, the, the one that um, opens the peasant. That whole story with the Texan bringing the, the, the herd of horses was a story that Faulkner wrote called The Spotted Horses, and he moved it in. And it's, it's like, um, go down Moses. Faulkner often sees that he was dealing with the same thing without recognizing it and put some things together the way he did with Go Down Moses. Um, in The Spotted Horses, it's not two men. It's the entire community. All the friends have been banded out, and, and people from outlying communities have, have come to this auction. And the guy sells off all the horses except two. So you know that now a whole community is implicated. And we also know that they're cheated. <clears throat> the Texan says to Mrs. Armstead, go pick up the money tomorrow. She do, almost has no nerve to do it ex except from the prodding of Mrs. Littlejohn, and then she goes. And So we're watching an enlargement, an expansion, that evil is spreading. It's not just a couple of men. Now we're watching a culture, an entire culture, um, implicated in this. So there is a larger thing in the South. And remember what I said, don't, don't forget this, because I really believe this. Um, the defeat, most of the great Southern writers see, saw that. They, they believe they came of age because they had to become conscious of a sin. It made them far more self-reflective. It's exactly what happens in the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. Every good critic says, at those moments when a paradigm shift takes place, a culture radically shifts with the, with the Copernican Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, the Reformation, exactly at those moments, you very often have the greatest literature produced because a culture stands at a pitch when they know they're about to lose something. Shakespeare wrote at that moment, Dante wrote at that moment in, in, at the end of the Middle Ages when the Christian worldview was about to collapse. Shakespeare Milton saying, every great writer, most great works of literature stand at that moment. Dostoevsky's Russian literature, the, the Brothers Karamazov, is at that same point in Russia. When you're about ready to lose a culture, you, you, you begin to ask questions that go to metaphysical problems, the deepest, the deepest kinds of problems. So, <clears throat> Faulkner's writing at a time when the South is losing its identity. It's, it, it's lost its way. A northern carpetbag mentality in the Snopes comes in and so takes over. Sorry? Writing with a straw suitcase <laughs> kind of drove the parallel to the carpetbaggers. Yeah, 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 good. Okay? Okay, let's, this is, I'm, I want just very quickly some. In, you know, in the Flem episode, we, we see the beginnings of Snopesism that, that Flem uses Jody's fear. Jody capitulates. And you know that that section ends with that description of, um, of Jody's usurpation, that Flem has taken his place. He's even in Varner's house at that point. So um, it's, it's a little bit like Henry's England or. Or, or, or just preceding Henry's England, when kings were usurping, claimants were usurping the throne to take over power. That's what happened, that's what happened with Flem and Jody. Jody, you can say that Flem usurped, you can also say that Jody 
capitulated. He, he gave in. And that section ends with, with funny, comically, with ratless vision of Phlegm usurping the prince, taking over hell. What's wonderful about that is it's funny, but it's sinister. I mean, Ratliff is the only one who, who sees the spiritual nature of evil. That this is, you know the, the, that a house cannot stand divided? Phlegm's taking it over. I mean, it's, it, the question the book is raising, who's going to bring Phlegm down? Um, once evil starts, how, how will it be defeated? Um, in the Eula section, we saw the, the extraordinary power she had as a woman because of her sexuality. She just exudes it. I, I use, you know, Sophia Loren and women like that and just to try to make this real because it's so clear with, that some women are given something sexually that radically changes the way everybody looks at them around. There's no way a young girl like that, 13, 14, can be in a classroom and not have all the other girls aware of her because their own sexuality comes into question. And we know what the response of the men was. Lusts were set loose everywhere. Um, <clears throat> and we, Labov, the teacher, was undone by her. I mean, undone in a, in a painful, painful way. And then McCarran gets her pregnant. We saw that. And, she, and then takes off. Because none of, all those men want to have sex with her. None of them wanted to marry her. And then it ends with Varner going with Flem and Eula to the train station and marrying his daughter. She gets married off. So that to me is one of the saddest moments in the whole book because it seems like nothing happens, but it does. And the only reason, the only reason we know, again, is because it's Ratliff. Because there's that long description of the word, the rumors that are passing around after the marriage, this word that goes on through villages, through old and young, about the whole affair and the wagon, which is its, um, it's the word, avatar, that it's the last vestiges of what happened. Um, and Ratliff's describing was they went to the train station and that was it. And you get this sense that it just happened. And this goes to the sense of the complacency again of the South. Here's this extraordinary, extraordinary gift to this little village, this woman who is larger than life. She gets married off. Who cares? The village goes on its way as if nothing happened. We only get that through Ratliff because he's the one who's upset. And, and we know how angry he is because of the things he says. He doesn't blow up, but he's seething. And the next chapter begins with Ratliff seething again and then going to close up that board Remember, because the peep show started. So um, the, the Eula section ends with her being married off. The, the long summer takes us into a darker period of this plot. Um, because in one sense, the, the um, Ike's wooing of the cow is an indictment of modern marriage. That that spirit of courtship is so completely lost that men, if you watch Ike woo the cow, we're getting a parody of, of what men felt they should do for the women they loved in the Middle Ages when courtship was, um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The courtly romance, the, it's the courtly romance tradition where the, where the lover would. Chivalry? Yeah, that's. Yeah, all of that, the, 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 the knight would serve the woman um, and give his life for her. 
if you watch what happens with Ike, he, we talked about this, he goes through every stage, woos her, she retreats, he saves her, rescues her, feeds her, takes care of her, adorns her with flowers. And all of that is, is described in terms of their being one with nature. When you look at all the other scenes, everything the men do puts them at odds with nature. They're trying to master it, dominate it. So indirectly, it's showing, it's indirectly casting a dark light on the sexual relationships between man and woman. There's something wrong in love. Love is not existing. We, we, saw, the, we saw that in The Sound of the Fury <coughs> with Benji and Quentin. So people care more about making money, having careers, than they do about loving one another. So it's getting really darker, and, and set against that wooing of the cow is the mink Houston story. And that's really dark because <laughs> I mean, a human being kills another human being. And right in the middle of it, lump snow comes up, says Houston had $50. It's getting parodied again because all he cares about is getting money. So the economic impulse in our country, in, in, the, in the story, has so taken over that it's lost a sense of human values altogether. And then we come to the, um, the, the peasant section, and I want to just very, very briefly um, summarize it, and then I want to look at some passages with you, Paul. It begins with the spotted horses. Flem has finally returned. Eula preceded him alone. He comes with his text and <laughs> to make a deal. He's returned. I mean, this is, it's such a giveaway. He's coming home with, can he ever pass up a, an occasion for making money? He's not coming back to a family or to take care of his wife. He's coming back to make a deal. So we, there's not a point in this story where we ever see the men ease up on this. The, the, men, the men are driven for power, for power. The fascination with horses in the very beginning is a giveaway. Ab describes himself as almost having this thing for horses. I've, I've tried to describe it as the, the, in, in contemporary terms, in terms of watching young men wanting to have a, a car with horse power and to race other cars to show who's better to get one up. That all of the men are really obsessed with this mechanical power. Here, here it's in horses. So what began the story ends it. All these men come to look at these horses that have all this power because to watch them um, sends them off in this romance, this dream of what they can do with a horse, with a field, with their work, or who knows what they're going to do with the horses. Um, um, Armstead comes along and breaks into this. He's outraged that they would have begun uh, without him, and that the Texan would have given, offered Jody a horse free because he's the first one, because he feels cheated that he was not given that same opportunity. So not only is he obsessed with horses, but now he's angry and brings that to what he does. So he, he buys the horse, and you know what happens. Nobody goes into the crowd to get it. He tells his wife to come in. The Texan says, stay out, because he knows her life is in danger. Armstead forces her in. He even slaps her, I think, when she doesn't control the horse. 
And there's a commotion, the horses scatter, get wild again. Um, somebody left the gate open, they take off. One of the horses is described going through Little John's house. It's a one, I'm gonna read it because it's... Um, <clears throat> the one horse that Eck was given free goes through the house and when they finally chase it out, it goes up over the bridge just as the tolls are passing in their wagon. He climbs over the back of the mules onto the hitching post into the wagon turning it, setting the mules free so they lose their mules. Tall is injured, and the episode ends with all the men heading into who knows where, looking for their horses. I don't, I don't think, did any of them get recovered? I, no. Eck didn't. And the next day, or a couple of days later, we're in a courtroom scene because Armstead and Mrs. Tall are bringing Phlegm to court to collect damages. And they can collect none because nobody can prove that Phlegm was the owner of the horses. The Texan's gone. And when it comes to testimony, Lump lies, says that he knew that the horses weren't his. So the law is impotent. It can't do anything. Armstead loses her money, and we know that she worked, I don't know, endless hours to save that money to buy um, shoes for her kids for winter. Her husband was so fascinated that, that he wanted that, he cared more about having that horse than he did about his wife or the well-being of his children. It's a sad moment. Um, um, the courtroom, the, the decision is handed down. Um, it's another defeat um, of the um, Frenchman Ben community at the hands of Flem. The last section of that fourth ch chapter um, deals with Flem's scam with Ratliff and Armstead, who's obsessed, um, has been watching Flem. He heard about this possible treasury, treasure left in the old plantation. It was one of the things that was passed down because after the Civil War, when the South lost, it wasn't uncommon for them to bury treasures. It wasn't always money, it could be jewels and other things. So apparently people have been hunting on that ground forever, which is to me a giveaway for, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think we're meant to go that. It, I mean, there's so many giveaways. The Ratliff didn't even look at the pouch is unbelievable. That he didn't look at the money is unbelievable. But I just don't think we're meant to, you know, go there. It's that Faulkner's got something else in his mind, and right now it's that Ratliff get beat. Um, anyway, you know what happens, uh, that um, after Flem leaves, Ratliff says, we've got to come back, we've got to find the one place that we're buried, because if we dig it up, other people will see that it's being dug, another piece of evidence, and so he goes to get Uncle Uncle Dick, because his name a diviner, and bring him the next night. And he, after traversing the property, that, that tuning fork with a tobacco pouch on a string. The tobacco pouch has a golden tooth in it. When it when it <laughs> when it comes over the one of the spots where the coins are hidden, the rod gets stiff, and so does the string. Now it was hard for me to believe that, but apparently that sort of stuff happened. See, I would love to see you get into it with Flem because the the the, 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 the really great so 
the really great thing about this is, and who is, I was watching a movie the other night called Shooter. It's a, it keeps coming up again and again. And these guys go to this, this man who's supposed to have all this expertise on guns and bullets and stuff. And after he gives them all this information that only this guy has, he, he, he leaves them this comment. The minute you think you figured it out, <laughs> you, you're lost. And I, I kept thinking of that when I was watching Ratliff because, you know, he's got this sense that he really does want to get, and he's got the wherewithal to do it, but Flem beats him. Anyway, we, they dig it up, and they find three different packages, and immediately Ratliff says, we have to buy it. So he goes and meets Flem the next day, and they make arrangements to sell it, all of the men meet, and Ratliff manages to pay his share off because he has half share in a restaurant in Jefferson that he passes on to Flem. That's the opening. So hold on to this. Ratliff, I'm, I'm going to say without, without a question, is, is the, the best man in this Frenchman Ben community. The, the most shrewd, the most conscientious, the most upset when he watches things go bad. We'll read a couple of passages here in a minute. He's really angry at a number of times when he should be. Um, he lets Flem beat him, scam him. He knows enough not to give Armstead the $5 back. He makes a point of saying that because he knows he'll waste it again. Um, he is angry at Armstead because he's so stupid and not good in what happens with his wife. And yet he goes into this deal with Armstead. When Flem bests him, um, who is a book right, Ratliff and Armstead are the owners of Frenchman Bed. The last passage we have of the novel is of Armstead digging madlessly, even though Ratliff has said, there's nothing there, we got taken. Because he's a man who has gone mad. I mean, there's the implications for the South that they, they it, this man has lost his bearings in this hunt for money. Right, right. So think about this for Ratliff, how dark this is. He's, he's, he made a choice to do something that intimately involves um, Armstead in a greater wrong than he was involved with when he got the horse in the first place. And now he's committed to it because he's committed, he, he's an owner in this worthless piece of property. What does that do for Armstead? So, the, the novel is a really dark novel. I mean, that's why I said I'm just shocked that Faulkner would wait 16 years to answer this because it puts Ratliff in this dark light. I mean, he, he's done a number of things that, that implicates him with the stupidity and the foolishness of other people when he's done everything he could to try to help people not do those things. So the two, the two great <clears throat> themes... The, um, remember I said that the great theme, and you won't, we won't see it until all three novels are put together, but the great theme of the trilogy, it seems to me, is God putting his house in order. Right now we're watching a culture lose itself. It's, it's becoming complicit in this culture. It's a little bit like our getting complicit in crimes that we know we should be resisting. So the great theme is God putting his house in order. You can say another way of putting that, or sub-theme, is the South growing up, the education of the South. 
And at the center of this education is this education of this really good man, Ratliff. And right now, <laughs> he's not looking very good. Um, let me stop there. I want to I read some passages, but I, I think that's just sort of in the, the Hamlet as a whole. That should pull everything together and some of the major concerns. We've, we've looked at some of the minor, let me just touch on this quickly. We've looked at some of the minor themes. The loss of love in the modern world in America, the way in which um, people allow an economic interest to keep them from loving. They're far more concerned about making money or careers. When you look at the differences between the sexes, the, the differences are imaged in an archetypal way in the differences between the horse, which is very masculine, and the cow, which is very feminine, milk-giving. Um, and you can extend those types out in the characters themselves, because if you look at the men, um, they're given to power, they want to get, be one up on another one to, to get better, it's like people, remember the whole, the whole push of Flem Snoop is to outdo somebody. It, he's an image of the upward mo, mo, the upward mobility of the American entrepreneur, wanting to um, go on up, you know, to better, um, because remember it's going village, town, mansion. I mean that tells you sort of graphically what the, what's at the heart of this. And we watch the effect of this on the sexes. The men are stupid, generally. Um, they do stupid things all the time in this quest for honor and to up one. And, um, and the women are unfailingly loyal. I mean, even when the men get brutal, I'm really touched by it. I mean, you guys might feel differently, but you know, when, um, when Mrs. Snopes screams at Mink and tells him to get out when he gets the gun, and then after he shoots Houston and Lump says, your wife's looking for you, and he goes to Varner's and finds her, there's that passage, I read it in class, where she screams at him. She said, God damn you, God damn you. Why didn't you leave? You could have gotten away. Um, and then a minute later she said, I wish I could have been the one to hang you, bring you back to life and hang you again, bring you back to life and hang you again. Um, you, don't, you say that in fury because you love somebody. You know, um, and Houston's, <laughs> no? No, well, uh, no sorry. That's debatable. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> no, it's because you all are so cynical, that's all. <laughs> you may not, I do. Remember Lucy Pate was, I mean, un and, and it's interesting because she almost never looked at Houston. I mean, her, she knew where her mind was. Um, she was going to unfailingly be there to get him through school. And, and then the woman that Houston kept, that he lived with for a time, who wanted to go back to Jefferson with him and stay in town and be available. So what we see in the women is uh, are this extraordinary fidelity. It reminds me of the women of the cross, you know. All the men, as far as I know, except John, were gone. The men scattered. So those are the, I think, the major things that Faulkner's looking at. He'll continue, those continue to be the major themes in the hamlet, and I mean the town, and mansion, except we're going to move into a city world. 
um, and the, the, the plot will unfold in a very, very different way. <clears throat> I just want to look at a couple of quotes and then stop today, but before we do, I want to, but when we end, I'm going to read the last section, the last part of uh, East Coker, so we finish that, that quartet. Any questions before we look at some passages? My only, well, I guess my only thoughts are, you know, we're, we're talking about this in a kind of a, like this, this is pervasive to the entire world. I mean, this, this, this aspect of evil overcoming, and yet, I guess my own experiences with the world and in, in its international aspect was that there are so many different scenes that you see with regard, particularly let's say with regard to women. You know, you you men who married all who on the boat they were single guys and they all married Asian women, uh, <laughs> and may, mainly because the way those women treated them. I mean, you asked them, well. You know, why did you marry, beyond the fact that they were gorgeous, beautiful women, particularly a lot of the Thai, the Thai women that they, that, they, that they married. But they, you know, they were, they, well, they, I wake up in the morning and there's, the tea is standing on my bit nightstand and she, she's on the floor with, on her knees with the, put, ready to put my the slippers, slippers on. on yes. You know, <laughs> it's, you know. <laughs> What's the matter with you, Fred? <laughs> Francis, get him going. <laughs> what? You do. I And it just, you know, it, it, it's, it's like, well, okay, you, maybe we can say this about America, or at least the South, anyway. But does it have a this this broader thing? Because everywhere else in the world, it's they're they're very different. The Russian women would be very, you know. Very dramatic and very, very stern and uh, and the like. I mean, uh, <laughs> they're, they're aggressive. Can be very extremely aggressive gals. I mean, uh, the Thai women will carry your golf clubs. Huh? The Thai women will carry your golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> tell you which one you need to use. <laughs> but that's my only. That's my only. Yeah. I mean, only comment is that in a in a. You know, Sometimes you get uh, you get observed obs absorbed in this this aspect that it's that it's all it's universal and it's really not. And I guess it's really yeah. It's funny because I, it, I if I were to reflect on what I'm doing, I'd say yeah. I I try really hard to make it clear that our focus is on America and the South. Okay. And very often. I, I will go from the south and extrapolate and say, yeah, yeah. you know, because what we're looking at here in the south, I don't think is, I mean, that's the <coughs> focus of it, and it's crystallized there. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're seeing here can be said in a good measure to be true of the rest of America. Mm -hmm. And I would, I, so my, I tried, if I'm not, then that's a mistake mm -hmm. on my part, because I've tried in all the things when we did Moby Dick, same thing, that's critique of America. Um, but I, but I also happen to believe, just in response to your your comment, uh, Bob, is the the things that we're talking about have a universal quality, well, we and it's know, it's, so not I, to, yeah. no, I agree. it's not I to agree. Yeah. it's not to it's not to do away or explain away with cultural differences because the cultural differences are real. Yeah. The, no, what agree. you're talking about in Russia or Thai, but I would say, generally speaking, from my reading, because I've done reading in Eastern. Mm. 
cultures and and from what I know of other cultures, that there's a universality to some of this. If you're in a matriarchal world, mm -hmm. things may be reversed, yeah. and there are there are matriarchal cultures, you know, yeah. over the world. And but if you in there, what I my tendency, I, I want to be very careful because we're I'm speaking at a level level of generality right now. Even in a matriarchal culture where there would be inversions. I'm not sure that they would be exact. I mean, we're looking at something very concrete here. But I know, for example, just for example, from my reading of, of literature, um, l fiction that's rooted in actual experiences in the East, and books that I've read about them, and that includes the religious text, the major, the Tao, some of the other major things, um, that this difference between men and women is still true because to, to some extent, particularly in Eastern cultures, that sense of the honor code among men and women is much more severe. It's the same thing, but more severe. Face saving in the East is deadly. I mean, the slightest wound, the slightest insult can put a person to either take his own life or want to take the life of somebody else. And it's it's my own experience is what I know, say, of Eastern cultures, Thai, China, Japan, that, that face-saving is so deep. And the tendency of men and women to treat each other as objects is very real, so that women get looked at as things. And, and largely to, to, to satisfy the sexual appetites of men. Let me, let me break from that for a minute to, to, to say one of the values of literature in Western cultures it's in the West that Christianity has been most advanced, where freedom is more a part of our culture, and both sexes are encouraged by our, by our political structures and systems to bring to come to a point to learn to regard each other as as human beings with dignity, because that's very very often lost in other cultures. Agree with that. You know, I mean, I, I look at the. I remember when I was at Maglin and we read. Um, Stone of the Chrysanthemum, and we were reading texts from the Tao and some other works from the from the culture. Um, I was actually a little bit upset because one of the faculty members was endorsing the Geisha um, tradition community, and um, there's something. I mean, how can you take away from women who sacrifice their lives like that? The, the beauty, the delicacy, the the graciousness. I mean, the the gentleness in the you know the women. I mean, there's nothing there not to admire, but when you look at the correlation and what it mean, what it says, you know, about the sexual relationship there, it it makes me cringe because they're the the mask that they wear. You know, that they're not seen as, in the Christian sense, as a person with their own dignity, their own individuality. They enter into a tradition that's that's very much defined by a male female. Dynamic and <clears throat> anyway, I've not wanted to. I mean, if I've done that, it's a mistake on my part. I've tried no, to. It's not you. You know, it's just that I. I you know, it, 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 it struck me as I both read the book and and the like, and been sort of recognizing. Yes, is this how isolated is this, or how how big is it? And I'm I started thinking about the rest of the world, and of course, even. At, at, particularly at that time, which of course I you know, have yeah. limited knowledge, but certainly in the current current world, I've you know, been through that experience. Yeah, it's it's particular to the South. The language yeah. particular. Yeah. I mean, you can't read it enough. Oh yeah. 
But in, in some ways, when, when we do, do Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, right. that's going to be a Russian novel. Right. There's no way to read that, I think, and not find ourselves in it. Because yeah. one of the values of this literature for me is that it, it, even if it's Moby Dick is specific to the North, you know, this is, there's a universal, we learn to see ourselves. If a writer goes into depth and shows a human being in depth, we're going to find ourselves there. If you stay on the surfaces, you're going to be caught in differences because cultures are different. But once you go into the depths and you see the depths of a person, even if it's in China or Asia or Thai, um, we're going to find ourselves. The interesting thing about this is this is more likely to happen in the West because we've got Plato's cave. It's inbred in us to believe that only if we step outside of that can we learn to really see what's going on inside. If you don't have that perspective, can you really have a, a rich literary tradition? I would say no. And I think that's why when you go to those other cultures, you don't have a living tradition unfolding. That's one of the great distinguishing characteristics of the West. <clears throat> um, it doesn't exist. It doesn't have the same depth or universality in other countries that it has for us. But getting back to your one one comment about you know about if I kill you, I, you know, I hang you again and the like. The reality of it was, I mean, I had an experience with I think I told you once with a Kazakh guy who were at a, at a restaurant when we were discussing families through an interpreter, and the man suddenly realized that we were really very much alike in many ways. Right. And his comment to he started crying, weeping. I mean. Just and the interpreter said, you know, just be calm, don't say anything, and 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 he, but he was mumbling things, and he and I asked what the interpretation was, and he says, I I couldn't kill you, Bob, I couldn't kill you, <laughs> and he had been trained that that Americans were evil, they were wrong, and they should be killed, uh, and he was just, I mean, over this table in this very yeah. really fancy restaurant, and uh, like I say, just you know. But just weeping, and you know, everybody in, in, the, in the place knew that he was, you know, in some sort of distress. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, he, he uh, pe people do that. I I wanted. We're not going to have time. I wanted to go over some of these. Let me just say this about the spotted horse section, because it's stunning me. If you've read it, you know how com how perfectly the scene is realized. There is not a detail that he leaves out. When, when, when you're reading it, you're, you're there because he's so adequate to the task of describing what the horses are doing and the people, um, the moon, the mockingbird in the tree. All of it is completely realized. When the horses moved, he describes them in such a way that we see them. I think it's beautifully executed. To me, it's, we don't have, I'd like to read some, but we don't. Um, <clears throat> While he's describing the horses, very often he will describe them in terms of a phantom image or a hobgoblin. Or so he touches on something mystical. It's not just horses; something else is going on, and that's brought home when X horse escapes. Well, no, even before that, when X son gets into the corral and he, his father keeps telling him get out, he's really angry at him. The horse jumps over him several times, never touching him. And when the horse goes into the house, he jumps over him. So either we blow that off and say, Faulkner's 
not being real, or one of the one of the um, one of the parishioners, Earl, said, um, "Drunks and babies." When I was there, you know that somehow, somehow people manage to escape disasters when everybody else is hit by them. Or, so that happens a number of times here. Ratliff's not safe. He has to jump through a window because he knows if the, the horse gets in there, he's going to get it. But it's strange to watch that there's almost something magical and natural taking place at the same time. We don't have time to look at it, but... Um, <clears throat> after the horses escape and they bring Armstead into Mrs. Littlejohn's house on page 337, we get this same sense of... Um, the differences between the sexes. Middle of the page. I'll declare, she said, you men. They had drawn back a little, clumps shifting from one foot to another, not looking at her, nor his wife either, who stood at the foot of the bed motionless, her hands folded into her dress. You all get out of here, VK, she said to Ratliff. Go outside, see if you can't find something else to play with that will kill you, that will kill some more of you. <laughs> um, um, on page 139, we get Varner. Varner is the county veterinarian, so he's the one that they use as a doctor to come in and take care of Armstead. He has this beautiful passage about the superstitions. If, you, if a woman's pregnant, she, she lays in the moonlight, it'll produce a, a, a girl. And so there's this mystical, superstitious quality running through. It's very subtle, it's very understated. He doesn't make anything of it, but it's there. Um, on page 342, two days after the event, the men are on the veranda again talking, and Ratliff is clearly angry. Um, but he never, he never blows up. It's a controlled um, spirit of indirection. He doesn't talk directly. He doesn't get in your face, but he's speaking to something, making people aware that they're not looking at somebody. Everybody's aware of that. They, they think of Ratness of thinking he's shrewd and can, nobody can beat him. And on page 343, this is a, just an illustration, a good example of the kind of irony that shows a quality of mind, of intellect, nobody else has. Page 343. Eck caught one of them, the second man said. That's so, Ratliff said. Which one was it, Eck? The one he gave you or the one you bought? The one he gave me, Eck said, chewing. Well, well, Ratliff said. I hadn't heard about that, but Eck's still one horse short and the one he had to pay money for, which is pure proof enough that them horses wasn't phlegms because wouldn't no man ever give his own blood kin something he couldn't even catch? They laughed again. Somebody described that irony. Of course he would. Hmm? Of course he would. Of course he would. Right? I mean, it's, it's very understated. He's negating it. He doesn't say he never would. He's saying the opposite, and everybody sees the irony. Think about the intellectual ability that a person has to have to turn something like that as a matter of habit. That stuff comes out of him all the time. Um, he's the only one who has that sense of irony because he has that double vision. He knows. And he also knows if he were to argue with these men, let's say he just came out and said, um, in anger, Flem will always cheat his family. What would be the response? Or what's the difference between his saying that and his saying it ironically the way he does? 
it softer? Find another word. Flush it out. Softer it is. What? Flush it out some, can you? So that they can kind of save face a little bit. Hmm. You know, so yeah. it's not right. Right, right. Like this is what right. your own kin will do to yeah, 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 yeah. versus letting them go off and kind of mull it over. And yes. they probably already know yes. that who yeah. the lamb is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that's so true. It lets them hide. It allows them to hide, yeah. but uncomfortably, because yeah. he's making... That, I mean, that's the difference that... It's the difference between a rational approach and an emotional one. Because if he just came out and said, you know, Flynn will cheat his own kind, then there would have been a kind of a negative emotional response. Oh, that's not true. But the way he did it, in, in, in irony, makes the person think, you know, he really did. Yeah. So it almost, it almost triggers a more... Uh, significant response and the other stuff you have if you just get yeah. right out in your face. Yeah. Right. I want to be careful about making reason and emotions opposed in a black-white because I don't think that's what goes on with Ratliff because we know that he gets angry I think appropriately but but here... I just meant in this particular case yeah. I think it was more yeah. effective the way he did it than it would have been if he got the That's a part of his ongoing humor with these men um, and it, I make, I mean, if, if it's not in your face, I wonder if it doesn't allow some growing, it takes a lot of patience to say that and go on, and maybe hope, you know, because I don't think these men are at a point where they're going to see it or even want to challenge it right now the way Ratliff does. Take a look at the next page, 345. Flem comes up and they all say hello to him. <clears throat> um... 344 at the bottom. Maybe you could put his mind at rest, Snopes turned his head slightly and spat across the... Because Ratliff has been questioning who the owner of the horses was. That's calling into question Flem. And here's the point, going back. It would, it, would, it would call into question the integrity of all the men who were there because they didn't do anything. So if he got blunt about this, it's going to implicate them. So Snopes turned his head slightly and spat across the gallery and steps into the dust beyond. He drew the knife back and began another curling sliver. He was there too, Snopes said. He knows as much as anybody else. This time the clerk got um, guffawed, shorting his features, gathering towards the center of his face as though plucked there by hand. He slapped his leg. Lump is getting a kick out of this because he's seen Flem's got an answer, even for Ratliff. He was there too, he knows. You know, he knows as much as anybody else. You might as well, you might as well to quit, he said. You can't beat him. Now, this is Ratliff, and it goes to this masculine competition because he stepped into it. You know that he does not like Flynn, and he, he does not want to be complicit in just letting things go. Top of 345. I reckon not, Ratliff said. He stood above them, not looking at any of them, his gaze fixed apparently on the empty road beyond Mrs. Littlejohn's house, impenetrable, brooding even. A hulking, half-grown boy. This boy comes up and he goes into the store and starts eating out. He, he's a, he, to me, it's a, it's a little, uh, what's the tableau? It's a, it's a little allegory of the Snopes because he's described as eating them out of the store. <coughs> it's what the Snopes are doing everywhere. Um, go down this towards the... That's not Ike? Huh? That's not Ike? No. no. It's no. another boy, right? Right. Um, 
Then the little boy bit the cracker again, chewing. Of course, there's Mrs. Tuttle, Ratliff said. And here's where you can, I think you can, in, you, can, you can catch a shift in his tone. But that's X she's going to sue for damaging tolls against the bridge. And as for Henry Armstead, if a man ain't got gumption enough to protect himself, it's his own lookout, the clerk said. Surely, Ratliff said. Now remember, Lump is defending Snopes. But insofar as the men are quiet, they're implicitly condoning it. That's part of what's going on here. Um, and Henry Arms said, that's all right, because from what I hear of the conversation that taken place, Henry had already stopped owning that horse he thought he was before that Texas man left. And as for that broke leg, that won't put him out none because his wife can make his crop. The clerk had ceased to rub his back against the door. <clears throat> because right now, you can tell Ratliff's getting angry. Mm -hmm. And remember, the, the, there's this blind, what, what do you call it, attachment sympathy between Lump and he, he's going to defend Flem. He lied in the courtroom scene. He, he believes Flem. He does not want to see Flem lose. Isn't Rattle also trying to get some response out of the other guys too by pointing all this stuff out? I think so. Saying, Why don't you stand up and just run this guy out of town or something? Yeah, you know? yeah he's not going to do But that, yes, for sure. Let's keep going with this because it gets to Mrs. Armstead and, and this whole question of what Rat, how are we to look at Ratliff as a man who's struggling to answer this and yet getting beaten and, and, and surrounded by people who are complicit in it, who just watch it and don't do anything. The clerk had ceased to rub his back again. That means he's serious. He has to stop for a moment because he knows something's happening. He watched the back of Ratliff's head, unwinking too, sober and intent. He glanced at Snopes, who chewing was watching another sliver curl away from the advancing knife blade. Then he watched the back of Ratliff's head again. It won't be the first time she's made their crop, the man with the peach um, um, spray said. Ratliff glanced at him. That is, this guy is enabling. He's making excuses. He's, it, um, it's the people's fault, not Flem's. So indirectly, he's supporting Flem. <clears throat> it won't be the first time she's made their crop, the man said. That is, even if Armstead can't get up, the wife can do it. So these men, pa they, they pass things off. I'm, I'm going to get angry just reading this. It me. the next paragraph. I, yeah, yeah. It gets, that's what, it's getting worse, yeah. But I'm just saying, I mean, it's just, it is embarrassing to watch this. It won't be the first time. You ought to know this won't be the first time I ever saw you in their field doing plowing Henry never got around to it. How many days have you already given them this year? The man with the peach spray removed it, spat carefully, and put the spray back between his teeth. She can run a furrow straight as I can, the second man said. They're unlucky, the third man. When you're unlucky, it don't matter. <coughs> right? <coughs> They're just passing it off. Nobody's taking responsibility. Nobody. Is that clear? Is everybody clear where we are? Surely, Ratliff, I've heard laziness called bad luck so much, um, so much that it, maybe it is. He ain't lazy, the third said. When the mule died three or four years ago, him and her broke their land working time about in the traces with the other mule. They ain't lazy. So that's all right, Ratliff said, gazing up at the empty road again. Likely she will, she will begin right away to finish the plowing. That oldest gal is pretty near big enough to work with a mule, ain't she? Or at least to hold the plow steady while Mrs. Armstead helps the mule. He glanced again. <clears throat> Go down. 
Um, the clerk stood with his rumpin' back pressed against the door. If Ratlet had looked at Flem Snopes, he would have seen nothing below the downstained peak of the cap save the steady motion of his jaws. Um, go down. Plenty of time now because all she's got to do after that is she finished washing Miss Littlejohn's dishes, sweeping out the house to pay hers and Henry's board, is to go out home and milk and cook up enough diddles to last the children till tomorrow and feed them and get the little ones to sleep and wait outside the door until that biggest gal gets the bar up and gets into bed herself with the axe. The axe? The man said. She takes it to bed with her. She's just 12 and went with this country still more or less full of them, uncaught horses that never belonged to Flint Snopes. Likely she feels maybe she can swing, she can't swing a mere washboard like Mrs. Littlejohn. I hope you can all, I mean, he's angry and he doesn't miss a chance for saying something that indirectly reflects on Snopes. Going over 348 at the bottom. Mrs. Arms, oh, wait, wait. So, what he does now is recount an exchange between Mrs. Littlejohn and Mrs. Armstead that he was present to. Um, the bottom of 347. No, she says, but asking him won't do no hurt. So Mrs. Armstead is saying to Mrs. Littlejohn, do you think I should go? And clearly, she doesn't want to go. She, she doesn't have the wherewithal. She's too, as, you can't read this and, and miss that she's a very, very timid person. If you wouldn't give it back, it ain't no use to ask, Mrs. Armstead says. Suit yourself, Mrs. Littlejohn says. And this is what gives it away. Watch what happens here between the two women. Sure money, then. I couldn't hear nothing but the dishes for a while. Do you reckon you might give it back to me, Mrs. Armstead says. That Texas man said he would. They all heard him say it. Then go and ask him for it, Mrs. Littlejohn says. And I could hear nothing but the dishes again. He won't give it back to me, Mrs. Armstead says. All right, Mrs. Littlejohn says. Don't ask him then. And I just heard the dishes. They would have two pans, both washing. You don't reckon he would, he would do you, Mrs. Armstead says. Mrs. Littlejohn never said nothing. It sounded like she was throwing the dishes at one another. It goes on and like this. Finally, What's going on in the scene? Describe it. And why the dishes? What's, why does he keep talking about the dishes? Francis, what's going on between these two women? <laughs> I, I think they both, that, and I guess that's why I don't think any of them are capable of solving this problem because the, the women seem to be the only ones that really realize what kind of idiots they're being. You know, but they don't seem to be empowered enough to be able to do anything about it. So there's, there's great frustration, I think, in this scene, mm -hmm. in that they both realize that Mrs. Armstead's been had, and Mrs. Littlejohn, she's tired of all this stuff going on, but they both don't seem to be you know, capable of doing anything about it. So I think that's when you start hearing the dishes going around, because it's just an expression of all that frustration. Well, I don't think they're, Mrs. Littlejohn sees it. She's yes. just saying, oh, can't you get some gumption and go do yes. something about it? Well, no, that's yes. what I'm saying. They both see it, but they don't I seem don't to have the power that, that, that Mrs. they don't have I, don't, power I think, think Mrs. Armstead is just too timid. Yeah. I mean, she's so cowed yes. by society and her husband and her situation. Yeah, I think I really... Well, well, that's what I mean by not being empowered. I mean, they don't, they don't seem to have... Well, wait, wait, hold on. Littlejohn is a pretty empowered person. Yeah. Wait, wait, listen. Here, go. 
John's a pretty empowered person. She's running her boarding house. She uh, told Ratliff, get out of here. You guys yeah. will find another toy go to kill yourself. To yeah. I mean, she stands up to the men. She feeds them as well. But mm. she's, got a, she's a businesswoman. Yes. Yes. What I'm saying is she's not capable of stopping. Flint. Wait, well, stop. Here, let me. Here's a place to stop him. Here, oh. Yeah. That's, oh. Here's the thing. It's Well, here, hold. Okay. She's getting, in my reading. The, the dishes are an indication that she's getting angry and angry and angry because Mrs. Armstead won't do anything because because it's her place to do it. She gave the it was her money she earned it her husband and and it's clear from her questions she doesn't want to go. So Mrs. Littlejohn is getting angry and angry and angry and the dishes are an expression of this and Ratliff is presenting it with phlegm and these men listening. And it's no accident Ratliff's presenting it because I think he sees it the same way, or he wouldn't be. I don't think the men are listening. Well, I don't think the, you don't think the what? I think Ratliff's listening, but I don't think the men are paying Ratliff, attention. Ratliff, I think, is trying to motivate these guys to go out and do something. He's but despite them. what he tells yeah. them and how and how badly he makes them realize it is, they seem to be totally incapable of going out and doing yeah, anything about yeah, it, yeah. or willing to go out and do anything. I don't think they want to. I think they're capable. I mean, there's like 12 of them. Just go grab the guy, tar and feather, and put him on the But they, see, you, 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 you keep using the word, but I, this my read, I, I don't think these men are going to move. He doesn't, he doesn't think, he's not doing this thinking. He's not like a modern businessman. I've got to say this because if I do, I'm going to move my company men. This is an agrarian culture, these men. Don't do anything. They're oblivious. They observe. They're not used, they're not used to moving. Radliff's doing this to put an edge if there's a motive that you know they might be able to do something, it's got to be very fake. He's it's like he's beginning to educate. Something has happened. He's the only one observant enough to bring all of this up. He's the one telling us the story about Little John and and Armstead. And in the story itself, it's really clear. Mrs. Armstead is getting angrier and angrier because this woman will not. This is Little John. This is Little John. Yeah. Um, she will not do anything. She keeps she keeps asking as if she is thinking she'd like to get a way out. Now let's watch what happens when she does, because yeah. this has all been said. Watch her. Bottom of 348, Mrs. Armstead approaches, she comes to the step, but not looking at it, her hands rolled into her apron. Let me just ask, would Mrs. Littlejohn come on that approach with her hands rolled into her apron? No. No. He said that day he wouldn't sell Henry. He wouldn't sell Henry that horse. She said in a flat, toneless voice. He said you had the money, and I could get it from you. Snopes raised his head and turned it slightly again, and spat neatly past the woman across the gallery and into the road. He took all the money with him when he left. He said. He's wiped, washed his hands. It's next page, middle. He said Henry hadn't bought no horse, she said. He said, I could get the money from you. I reckon he forgot it, Snope said. He took all the money away with him. We all know that this is a lie. That it, once again, he has no care for another human being at all. It could have been a man. In this case, it happens to be a woman who's virtually helpless. And there's not, not a touch of sympathy, of feeling. E even though Ratliff has just said, 12-year-old daughter is going to, do dishes, do all, you know, that they're going to have to do all this. And he laid that out as thoroughly as he could to show the injustice of it. Not a man moved. And, and there's not a question that Flem even blinked on it. I reckon he forgot it, Snope said. <clears throat> the clerk rubbed his back gently against the... It's so, every one of those rubs, 
is a is a confirmation that his cousin has just won. When he stops rubbing, he's, it's because he's concerned with what's going on. Go down to the bottom. Um, this is where it just to me it just. She moved once more. The rubber soles hissed on the god the nod boards. I reckon it's about time to get dinner started. She said. How's Henry this morning, Miss Armstead? Ratliff said. She looked at him, pausing, the blank eyes waking for an instant. He's resting. I thank you kindly, she said. Then the eyes died again, and she moved again. What should she have felt here? I hope there's not a question. She should have been outraged, and she should have been angry. Her eyes dying again is a giveaway. She was just resigned. Huh? She was just resigned. Yeah, yeah. She moved again. Snopes rose from the chair, closing the knife with his thumb and bruising, brushing a litter of minute shavings. He says, wait a minute. He goes into the store, and he brings out this little nickel candy. So insulting. Yeah, and it's a buy-off, too. Oh, here, he said, her, her hand turned just enough to receive it, a little sweetening for the chaps. Go down. The little boy was watching the sack in Mrs. Armstead's hand. Then she seemed to discover it also rousing. You're right kind, she said. She rolled the sack into the apron, the little boy's unwinking gaze fixed upon the lump her hands made beneath the cloth. She moved again. I reckon I better get on and help with dinner, she said. And she goes on. And then on the next page at the top, by God, he said, you can't beat him. Boy, I'd like to, I mean, I would have been in a fight. <laughs> Just, anyway, that's, so, it's, it's almost a, it's a, Mink killed Houston. You know, just before this, so we watched a murder. In terms of the moral degradation, those two men were ready to kill each other just as men. We're watching something, in some ways, in my own mind, almost more degrading because it's Pat. Mink has no question but that he killed Houston. This scene's being presented as if nothing's happening when it is absolutely humiliating. It's so degrading of her and of all the men who are watching and not doing anything. So the, the novel, in my mind, is getting really dark. And then it ends, you know, in the next section with Ratliff going out with Armstead to look for this buried treasure and, and Flem's scanning them again. Let's just take a look at the last words of the, the last close of it. You remember that the, the, that section begins with the Varners moving out of Frenchman Bend. They're moving their furniture. And people are lining up from all over the county to watch them. And then they drive off, and then people continue to stand at the fence and watch Henry dig, even though Ratliff has already told him that they were scammed, that there is no money. Um, Flem comes back, and he watches along with these other men at the bottom of 405. He's still at it. He's going to kill himself. Well, I don't know as it uh, will be any loss, not to his wife anyway. This is that... Barb sense of humor, all the men have. I mean, the, the, their humor has a barb of one degree or another in most of what they say. That's a fact. It will save her that trap, that trip every day, toting food to him, that phlegm snoops. That's a fact. Wouldn't no other man have done it. Couldn't no other man have done it. Anybody might have fooled Henry Armstead. But nobody, but couldn't nobody but phlegm snoops have fooled Ratliff. That seals it. I mean, this is any of the story. That seals it. Ratliff it could fool Armstead. Flem could fool anybody, but only, only Flem could fool Ratstiff. So it, 
the novel's ending with what I take to be the one of the best characters in this whole series. You'll see is, is um, this is partly about his education. He's gonna we're gonna see him grow a lot in uh, town, but here. Um, but could nobody but Flem, Snopes have fooled Ratcliffe. And then it describes Flem eating, chewing on his nickel, you know, there at the fence watching Armstead, middle of the last page, 406. He said nothing. He did not even curse now. He just ran at them, dragging his legs, stumbling among the clods he dug while the boys fled before him. The cruelty of kids, these kids are coming up, making fun of him, you know, coming up and then running off. He can't chase them because his leg is broken. He's got a broken leg. His farm needs tending. This is just, God, this is just so disturbing. His farm needs tending. His wife has no help. The 12-year-old girl is going to suddenly have to take on all of this. Um, Armstead continued to run until he stumbled and fell headlong and lay there for a time while beyond the fence the people watched him in a silence so complete that they could hear the dry whisper of his panting breath. Then he got up onto his hands and knees, first as small children do, picked up the shovel and returned to the trench. He did not glance up at the sun as a man pausing to work in work does to gauge the time. He came straight back to the trench, hurrying back to it with that painful and laboring slowness, the gaunt, unshaven face which was now completely that of a madman. He got back into the trench and began to dig. Snope turned his head and spat over the wagon wheel. He jerked the reins slightly. Come on up, he said. I can't believe that people had to wait 16 years for the next book. I can't. Because when I finish that book, I just want to take Flynn out by the way. I know, I got God. I just wanted five yeah. minutes with Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, in fact, I have, to, I, I have to contain myself right now because I just am so furious. Anyway, here we are. The, this evil... Faulkner has shown us that ev this evil has begun to permeate a culture. It's taking it over. It's showing the complicity of these people who are doing nothing while it spreads. And the last image we have is of a man going mad, and Ratliff is implicated, deeply implicated in what's going on. So the question that I want to ask here, looking ahead, is um, will anybody bring Clem Snopes down? Um, will, so. will the will will hold on. I'm really what? going to be upset. I've read three books. <laughs> if he's living in a mansion, you know, I don't know. Francis, sit on him for a minute, will you please? Here, will will the South learn? Will will how? What's going to happen here? We're watching a culture, not just a man. This is just not about Ratliff and Bookwright and Armstead. We're watching a, com a culture complicit in an evil. A male culture. Huh? A male culture. I was, a, I was embarrassed to be a member of the male race. <laughs> would, you, would you sit on him for a minute, please? We're watching a culture going to hell. Men and women, they're all complicit. This evil's going on. There's fundamentally sexual difference, but we're watching a culture. My question is, um, will anybody bring him down Will this culture grow up? I mean, what are, what's, what's, where are we going to go from here? What's Faulkner going to show us? And is God present? Is he just allowing this? I mean, where are we with this, okay? Okay. Now, um, you, all have, you all have a really good Christmas, okay? A really good Christmas.
We start up. We start up in the week of the eight. Okay. And I would really be glad to hear from you. To hear. Duck, duck, duck. Duck. 